This week's episode is brought to you in part by Private Internet Access. Private Internet Access is the number one VPN, according to Carl Pulling and lots of other people. So check it out and enjoy the show. Wonderful time of the week. Jingle bell, jingle bell. When you're angry at the, the, the world and nothing goes well, and somebody at your work is going to say hump day like it's the funniest joke that anyone's ever told. Honk, honk. Watch where you're going. La it's la la. Some- Oh no! What a oh. beautiful singing voice you have, Jamie. Somebody's in high spirits today. I hate uh, that so much. Yes, that. it's right. It's Wednesday. What does that mean? Does that mean we're still on a streak? That is just obscene. Welcome, valued, treasured listener, to Carl Pooling. It's a show that will certainly get you fired. It's the type of show where you go to get not just a take, but the take, truly, about religion, art, philosophy, science, culture, etc. Listen, there's a lot of people out there that want to talk about their truth. They say, my truth. Here's my truth. At Carl Pooling, we don't tell you my truth or our truth. We tell you the truth. And we're certified to do that because we're not totally retarded all the time. Uh, like all you know, the time, every other podcaster, just is. some of the time. That's right. Whereas other podcasters make a full-time job here. We have a semi, <laughs> just a part-time policy. And that's why you come to us. Uh, we're happy to have you. And Hunter, I just am so excited for our topic today. I couldn't even begin to describe it, but uh-huh. I won't until every single one of you rapscallions likes and subscribes to the show on your podcasting platform of choice. That includes Apple, Spotify, Google, and lately even Amazon Podcasts, which honestly, we'll see if that takes off. I don't know. Bezos might be past his prime. I think Elon Musk needs to make a a, uh, podcasting app. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, give Twitter some time. (laughs) Like, you know... Twitter I'm liking could be a, good for podcasts. Yeah, um, my boy smacked Matt Taibbi, my other boy, and my boys are fighting. And Your boys are fighting. Yeah, have you? Have you? Do you know any of this drama? No, um, I know none of. Oh, about Elon and Matt. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, to be honest, I couldn't really follow it. So help me out, because I'm not. I'm not deep in the Substack. Substack. War Substack like community. You. Yeah, I know. Like I've been living on Substack. I feel like for a little bit over a year, and it's it, it is the place. But um, essentially, like uh, I, I don't know what happened here because it's kind of cryptic. Um, Substack came out with this system called Notes. And it it looks exactly like Twitter. Now, I don't think that's that hard to do, quite honestly, because it's just like text messages with the world. I mean, that's that's what right. Twitter is like. It's an IM with the entire world, right? That people you follow show up there. But Musk said that they were taking code from Twitter via the API, and it wasn't like Substack denied that they were doing that but they also said that they weren't breaking the rules 
So that part's kind of like weird. Like, how did Substack know how to do how to make Twitter? Did they actually steal it, or did they? What What I heard is that they were were actually downloading a bunch of data from the API mm-hmm. to feed their algorithm. Yeah, and so then Elon Musk unwhitelisted Substack. But then Matt came out and said something like they were blocking articles to Substack. They were. Is that yep. it? Yeah, they were. So they started they started blocking articles, and then Matt and Elon actually had some private messages about Substack. Um, I won't go into any more details, but there. But Elon then publicly shared those private messages that they had on Telegram, and Hunter, then deleted. Please. Everyone knows what that we have slang for that now. It's called crowdering. Yeah, sorry. And then deleted those uh, messages back and forth, um, which he actually looked like kind of a jerk on, to be quite frank. Basically saying like, oh, you're with Substack and you want to kill Twitter is one way you could have read that. And so Matt was like, well, I ha- I'm loyal to my readers and they're the ones who pay me and they're on Substack. So de facto, I have to go to Substack because that's where my readers are with this feud. And so that's kind of where that all ended. So um, is, is Matt not on Twitter anymore? He is. I mean, he has a Twitter, but he doesn't post is kind of what he said he was going to do. I don't know how long that's going to last or anything like that. Yeah, um, it sounds like small potatoes to me. It, it's one of those things where it's like uh, it, it it's a really weird feud. Elon Musk went so far as to do, as to remove the Twitter file uh, uh, stories that Matt Taibbi put up and then undid that. So it's it's really weird. Like it's very childish. Uh, like Elon Musk literally unfollowed Matt Taibbi. Like it, That's it, it, it's kind of wild. It's just kind of childish, you know. Um, especially when that was such a good moment, you know, the Twitter files and all that. Um, so anyway, that it's just strange. Um, it shouldn't have happened and it's sad, but there you well, go. There, there you have it. There yep. you have it. The boys fighting. Uh, you hate that. And of course the boys be fighting. It, now we have to see who gets custody of young Jamie, Jamie bot. Yeah, exactly. Elon Musk is her father. Jamie, who do you want to go with? Just kidding. Don't answer that. You're a robot. You're property. No one cares. <laughs> so we've got lots to talk about today. Actually, I've been excited about this topic for a while. We're going to talk about a great work of literature, a great work of Russian literature. And yes, I know what you're thinking. Russia, I hate them. Listen, me too. Get in line. Um, unless you're one of those weird, like, neoconservative catholic patriots who think that somehow by the use of bullets and shelling the russians are trying to spread their christianity to to uh ukraine which is a super weird take and for all that i'd say just make sure not to post any secret fbi files to discord because you're gonna get hyper arrested for that it's great um but that being said, before we can get into today's topic, Hunter, please, the roadkill, undoubtedly, and with haste. Germany shut down its last nuclear energy plant on Saturday. On the same day, Germans learned their power bills were about to go up 45%. So uh, Germany was like, hey, you know how like Russia has been making energy prices like really, really bad for us, and that's been awful? Cool idea. Let's get rid of our nuclear energy plants, which is one of the ways that we can make our own energy so we don't have to pay Russia money. 
oh, that's going to come with a cost of absolutely inflating energy costs for our citizenry. Um, so it's like two bad things are going to happen there. Like two bad things. We're going to give money to Russia and we're going to give more money to Russia. Dude. Like way more money than before. The Germans. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about their moral character in any way in this statement, but just their efficiency. What a destructive fall from grace they've had. Yeah. They, th- this is so catastrophically stupid. Uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming this is in pursuit of some green ideal. Yeah, exactly. Like they're trying to, I don't know, make make everything better by not uh, spending all the money, uh, or they're they're trying they're trying to get you know they think nuclear is not green, even though it's the cleanest energy source that we have, right? It, it is it is in theory the cleanest energy source, not necessarily fusion and not necessarily uranium fusion, but deriving our energy from the atoms of the uh, the nucleus of of atoms is potentially the cleanest source of energy in the entire universe in fact solar is nuclear energy to get right down to it and the idea that that's not green is just it they're picking on stupid people is really what it is they're picking on people who don't understand the technology correct yeah I don't know if we've explained it on the show because I think a lot of people don't understand how nuclear energy works. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to explain it very quickly, very succinctly. Yeah. A coal plant has a big, a big reservoir of water. They burn coal near that reservoir to heat the water up and create steam. Steam creates pressure. At the top of the reservoir, there's turbines. The pressure turns the turbines. The turbines are connected to electromagnets and coils with resistance. When those are turned, energy is generated. That is how the power is made. So you're burning the coal, and that has that has CO2 runoff effect, right? That's not that's the ungreen part. Is how you heat the water, not water going through a turbine, which is obviously quite green. Of course, there's there's, you know, lubricants and other other oil-based products in that machinery, but regardless, the main source of the pollution, if you will, is burning of the CO2. Nuclear energy. Here's how a nuclear energy plant works, because I think a lot of people think like they're just like plugging uranium into the grid and it's doing this weird cosmic science thing and gases are bubbling off it. That's not oh. so weird i thought they just put hulk in like a room and when he punched the panels it made energy that's what i was about to describe hunter oh please continue (laughs) gamma radiation the most powerful form of radiation um (laughs) the that's like the one thing i know about comic books is that there's like they called it gamma radiation because me being a a astrophysics geek i was like oh gamma radiation that's sick like a pulsar and then it's not nearly that fun um, yeah. Anyhow, no, it's not. <laughs> anyhow, uh, there is there is so there is a reservoir of water, okay. And near that reservoir of water, there is a a what they call the core. The core is a 
collection of usually rods that contain a radioactive isotope. These radioactive isotopes go through typical radioactive decay, which is like alpha, beta, alpha decay, beta decay, where they shed particles. As they shed these particles at very high speeds, they interact with, with different molecules, but eventually the water molecules. This heats them up. This creates steam. Steam rises and generates a spin in the turbine. Now, you can get radioactive poisoning if you are not shielded, but the reason they shield the interior of these, these reactors are simply so that the particles cannot lose, uh, they cannot impart their energy farther than the water reservoir, basically. So nothing gets out. No gas is emitted, um, except for, Hunter, typically hydrogen and helium, because that's generally what decay actually is. Larger decay actually is helium, which is totally fine for the atmosphere. It's in it already. So on one side, you have carbon dioxide. On the other side, you have helium. And they would rather... They would rather have carbon dioxide, I guess. It's just, it's wild to me. My point is that the mechanism is all the same past that. It's the same turbines. It's the same spin. It generates the same electricity. It is completely, and it's a much safer way to heat up water. And Mm. by the way, the amount of mass it takes to heat up a mass of water is much less with a radioactive isotope than it is with burning coal. It's far more efficient to to allow the natural fission of those elements to heat the water. And so as far as like waste and landfills, there's significantly less as well. It is just obnoxious that these people hate nuclear energy so and pretend to be green. It is the greenest thing that we know how to do. It and it is the it is how green energy like solar energy works just a much smaller version of it here on the surface of earth. It's just, they're so stupid and they're picking on dummies. Yeah. You know, now hearing you describe it, I'm completely against it. Oh really? Wow. Um, That's interesting. Well, because I don't want the helium going into the atmosphere and making the birds squawk differently. That is not a great point. (laughs) I mean, they are drones. Holy crap! Just got sniped. That's supposed to be your game, homie. Go keep the podcast going on without me. (laughs) Take watch out for Jamie. He's strong, but he's also evil. (laughs) He teamed up with Boston Dynamics to equip himself with a sniper rifle to shoot you directly in the heart from cyberspace. That was brutal. Okay. Um, this is so stupid, but now let's get into the German specific <laughs> point of it. Because yeah. For a group. Now, when you say that they learned on the same day mm-hmm. that their energy bills are going up, it seems like some, let's say all too familiar German bait and switching at the political level here. Yeah. Something that's proven, let's say not so wholesome in the past. Yeah, it's kind of like, oh, you know, like 
you want to turn off the energy reactor? That's great. You get what's behind door number one. What's behind door number one? Pay me $500. Yeah, good Lord. We definitely know that the German government doesn't need that much more money. No, no. They're just going to... Uh, I don't want to think about it, actually. Yeah, let's not, <laughs> let's, let's leave it. Okay, well, thanks for that amusing anecdote and a little science for everybody today. That's great. That's what I'm here for. All right, Hunter, we have to talk for a minute about private internet access. Now, PIA is my favorite VPN. Have you ever used one before? Oh, yeah, they're great. Excellent. Jamie? My parents met on a VPN. Well, I'm not at all convinced that that's relevant, but let me tell you this. If you're online in the 21st century, you need a VPN. Why? As the amount of threats that exist on the internet increases and the amount of our data that's being stored online increases simultaneously, it's imperative that we do something to protect ourselves, protect our data as we surf the web. Now, VPN stands for Virtual Private Network. And what it does is it encrypts your data as it's going between your device, your machine, and the greater internet preventing it from being intercepted by malicious actors and hackers and identity thieves, etc. So a VPN is non-negotiable in today's digital day and age. Now, PIA is my favorite because it's the world's most transparent VPN provider. They have over 30 million downloads and they never store user data. They have a strict no logs policy, which has actually been proven out multiple times in courts and by a third party audit from Deloitte. So they truly don't store your data. That's right, Chris. And what private internet access does is it hides your IP address and encrypts your internet connection. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that internet service providers and government sensors can't get at your data. If you're saying something that you don't want them to look at, even if it's just your business, there's no reason for those nefarious actors to have any view into your data or what you're doing on the internet. That's your data. Protect it. That's right. And private internet access also comes with loads of entertainment benefits. The VPN is compatible with all of your major streaming platforms. So you shouldn't experience any issues running Netflix or Hulu or whatever streaming entertainment device you want to use. Plus, it's one of the few VPNs that supports P2P, that's peer-to-peer file sharing. So this is a huge benefit for power users. Not only do you get the benefit of using any streaming service, you can also use it with any operating system. We're talking Windows, Mac OS, Android, Linux, iOS. Use different operating systems, not a problem. Have an Android phone and want to use it on your Mac? Not a problem. And what's even better than that, you can have an unlimited amount of devices use it at the same time. That's right. And Carl Pulling has the best deal for you today on PIA, on getting a VPN, securing your data. For just $2.03 a month, you can start protecting yourself online and your family online. That's 83% off the sticker price for private internet access. So act now. You get that great price plus four months free and you really have nothing to lose because private internet access offers a free 30-day money-back guarantee as well as 24-7 support so you are definitely going to either be pleased with the product or not be out a single dime but i know that you're going to love it you're going to want to keep it private internet access has a great vpn 
Carpooling has a great deal for you. Support them. Support the show. Go to carlpooling.com slash PIA right now to take advantage of this great deal. Again, that's carlpooling.com slash PIA. Snag a VPN. Protect yourself online. Support them. Support the show. And we will really appreciate it. All right. Let's get back to the episode. Hunter, we've got a great topic today. I'm super yeah. excited. Here is the topic of today's show, I think, contained in one quote. And the quote is from Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel, The Idiot, uh, which, no, wasn't written about Hunter. He wasn't even alive <laughs> back then. But good point. And if you were going to make that joke, go ahead and email us at carlpooling at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, uh, we'd love to hear that joke from you. Yeah, we'd love to hear you saying yes. I agree and was going to make that joke. We'll read it on the show. And, uh, <laughs> but here's the quote. Beauty will save the world. It is, in my opinion, and not maybe Hunter's, but we'll discuss it. I think it's the central theme to the novel. And one thing, one reason that I wanted to read this novel in particular and discuss it is because I think it is eminently useful to a situation that we find ourselves in today which is this struggle between nihilism and the truth and what i thought was so interesting and so prescient about dostoevsky's novel here is that he realized that beauty sat at the intersection of those two ideas that it was related profoundly and directly. And in my opinion, he expresses that through this novel. And uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Hunter, um, an opening salvo? Yeah. Any introductory I'm, remarks? Well, I think before... L let me talk about it and let me give one caveat just to how we have to talk about this uh, story. Um, the brother... Fyodor Dostoevsky is my absolute favorite author hands down there's no question about it um i'm in a very large group of people that have that same opinion and i think once you've read him you'll have it too uh he's phenomenal the russians are phenomenal and dostoevsky is absolutely incredible he's an extremely what's so cool about dostoevsky too is he's such a strong christian um it permeates his entire writing uh he very much knew his culture where things were at in his day and spoke to the relevant issues. And the thing that is stunning about them is they're still relevant today. Um, I actually, when I finished reading the brothers Karamazov, I had a lot of thoughts, but one of the thoughts I had about the book was that it's criminal in churches that we do not make people, we do not make people read this book before they're out of high school. Like it's hmm. so fundamental to understanding where the Christian church is at today and the milieu that we find ourselves in, that I don't think it's possible. Surely you mean milieu and not no. milieu. Milieu is what I meant. sounds like a baseball player from the 30s. Yeah, a Barry Bonds and Milou Jones. Oh, Bobby uh, Milou. Bobby Milou, that's perfect. Um, I'm not even Bobby trying to Malou's say the word on again. The hot corner I... And here comes a smoking tater <laughs> right across home plate. Yeah, but, but I, I think the book is so perfectly describes where we're at and is what you need to understand. Um, in, in, in my opinion, it's gone so far. It's the farthest thing we have so far in the Christian church. 
right? It, it's like we need to, the next step is to push back beyond uh, where Dostoevsky got us. That's mm-hmm. that's my true and honest opinion. Um, that to be said, The Idiot is one of his great books. Uh, he had a couple of novels that were really, really powerful, and The Idiot is right there up with him. It speaks to the same topics. It does so in the Dostoevsky style. It's a great book. It'll teach you a lot about humanity. It'll teach you a lot about Christianity. It'll teach you a lot about your culture. Um, one thing to say at the outset is if you've never read a book with Russian names, boy, howdy, you're in for a treat. Um, Alyosha, Alyoshka, uh, and I can't even remember it, uh, are all the same character. Old, and old Bobby Malou. Right, and old Bobby Malou are all the same character. Uh, you have several problems going on. One, people are known by their name. Then they're also known by their patronomic, which is like their family name and their mm-hmm. patriarch's name. Uh, so that's another way to call them, and they're the same person. And then there are different translations of all those names. And then there are actually just different names that you can refuse to refer to the same name that are just the same name. And there's not a whole lot of rhyme or reason. I'm sure someone from Russia could explain it to me. But one of my favorites is Mitya and the Brothers Karamazov is also Dmitri. And if you don't know that while you're reading the book... You just think Mitya and Dimitri are two different characters that are in the same scenes all the time with each other. <laughs> and so, yeah. and so and we're going to say... I don't know if it's like... Okay, so the little bit that I know, I know yeah. that like like you had... There's a there's a, a Russian girl I knew, mm-hmm. and her name was Polina, but then people would call her Polinichka. Polinichka. Yeah, Polinichka. And, mm-hmm. and I would be like, what? Who is that? And it was just a way... It was like a, a endearing way to say her name. I, so this effect. when I've been in Ukraine, you know, they, they would name people like Vasa, Vasichka, Vasilina. And it's like, what does all that mean? And they'd be like, I, it's nothing. Like, it's my name. That's and it's like super obnoxious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're not used to that, it makes no sense. But yeah. if you are, it makes perfect sense. It's just different ways to say the same name. You know, you want to um, know an, another interesting thing about Russian translation just while we're on it. And, and yeah. Russian has this in common with a bunch of languages, including mm-hmm. like like uh hebrew for instance mm. there's no to be verb uh, ah okay yeah y- you can't say like i i am a carpenter you just say i carpenter which is right. pretty is pretty interesting too so it's when you read translations of russian everything is a little weird so mm. uh, and i've said this before too uh, we're talking about the language which is i guess the less important part of the book but um and, and i've taken flack from this too because they're styles i guess were a little bit different but i think that i think that dostoevsky would be revered above c.s lewis if he spoke english truly yeah uh, yeah I, I i think that his his handle on theology and its relation to the human condition in society was unparalleled truly um and and that does nothing to diminish lewis he's, he's probably the best western author from a certain point of view that has ever lived um, as far as the wholesomeness and profundity of his works. But uh, Dostoevsky is all of that in a bag of chips, in my opinion. Well, so two, two things on what you just said. The first is that one of the reasons I'm just bringing up the names is just so you know that we will say the names wrong today, and we may even call <laughs> the same character different names today. So yeah. it's just important to know as we're going to have this conversation that 
definitely, it just depending on the translation me and Christopher use, we may have different characters, and you may have different character names in your book, and that's kind of the nature of re- reading Russian literature. Um, that to be said, to go back to your point on Lewis, it's almost like, you know, I, I, I Lewis cannot, one of the reasons Dostoevsky does what you say he does as compared to Lewis is because Dostoevsky is writing uh, novels, he and Lewis did that too, but mostly this was in like children's literature, right? Like the thing he's mm-hmm. best known for is the Chronicles of Narnia, and that's written at a certain level, right? But also um, read this present darkness because oh my gosh, it slaps. Sure, but but the thing that Lewis primarily was concerned with was essentially apologetics, right? right? And so yeah. he and theology he, in general, right? And he's kind of he's kind of addressing different problems than. Um, that's kind of not fair. He actually, they actually are addressing the same problems, but they are addressing them in very different ways. Right, and it's correct. the power of Dostoevsky to put that into drama, which makes them so much more arresting. Right. Yeah. And, well, and it makes them, it makes them legible in a certain yeah. sense. Uh, you can, you, you, and legible on a level that's, that is deeper in my opinion than mere explanation, let's say. Because right. it's powerful to be able to explain a topic, but potentially what's more powerful than that is to make somebody understand a topic that they still cannot explain. And, yes. And Dostoevsky is unparalleled at that. And I think I think that there are. I'll I'll put it to you this way: the idiot is the Russian Great Gatsby, and. By comparison, F. Scott Fitzgerald's work is a complete farce. It is. That's it a great is, way to think it about it. It is a joke compared to the idiot. But but you'll read the stories and and on a first blush you'll you'll come away and say, well, this is this is just a different version of that story. But truly, it's it's it doesn't come close to how profound the idiot is, in my opinion. So. One thing, too, to say to all this is if you're hearing this and you're like, wow, Dostoevsky sounds like a really hard guy to read, I'm definitely not going to do it. It's one of the easiest books I've ever read. And this is the brilliance of Dostoevsky is most of what he describes is simply just people talking in a room. Most of it is just conversation. And most of it, like Christopher says, since it's describing an ineffable, it never says exactly what it is right most of the time it's mostly these people trying to like discuss their lives and things and like ideas and they're never necessarily like getting to like the the terms and the like the specific uh ologies that you need to know to understand this like it's written in very plain english uh, plain Mm -hmm. russian right and so they're very uh approachable books in my opinion despite being like you would like I put Nietzsche and Dostoevsky up there as some like the greatest literature ever written, some of the greatest books ever written, right? And Nietzsche is like is you have to like beat yourself apart to understand it, and you do not have to do that for a minute for Dostoevsky. No, you can not read it all. as quick as you want. Yeah, yeah. I read this. I read this book in the course of four or five days. Um, the idiot, which is the same amount of time I took to read Beyond Good and Evil last mm-hmm. year. And yeah. when I read Beyond Good and Evil that fast, I was my brain was actually hemorrhaging. Mm-hmm. I had to check myself into a, a rehabilitation center um, because, much like the character in our story, I no longer knew how to speak or or <laughs> could recognize the faces of any of my friends. But yeah. by comparison, um, this book it, is great. And and one thing that's brilliant about it, and then we'll actually tell you about it and quit just uh, praising it so much. But 
Mm. One of the things that's great about it is you read it and you are you are reading the beliefs of these different characters and they seem off or incomplete or archaic or anachronistic. And then what happens as you stack more and more and more of those explanations and statements and speeches one next to the other, what you realize is that the author's actual opinion is hidden in the interstitials, that he is stitching together an idea in your mind by leading you to different conclusions based on the issues with the individual conclusions of the characters. And that's where you see that's where the idea radiant and resplendent springs upon you from the page. And sometimes that doesn't happen until you're done reading the book in its entirety. But it it does that in, in such a a creeping and interesting and subtle way but yep. but profound when it finally connects and so it's uh it's quite it's quite an easy read and, and like like i said i think a lot of people could read it and unlike the great gatsby let's say truly understand it even if they couldn't analyze it in a paper yep so yep yeah it 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 is expressed in a way that is it, it is not it is expressed perfectly in that it doesn't have to explain itself right but it it's just understandable it's and it's it's brilliant in a way by having a podcast about it we're <laughs> bastardizing the intentions of our old late friend Fyodor yeah well but, you know i think i think his point was to dramatize his lessons not necessarily make them unexplainable you know, oh, no, and, for sure. And I think and I think that's what the idiot does. So um I don't even know if we can do like a brief summary of this. I can. Okay, go for it. Story opens, we're on a train, and our two protagonists or protagonists yeah. are introduced. One is a dark haired dyke dyke-eyed <laughs> uh, Dylan Mulvaney was a previous episode um, a dark hair dark eyed pale grave looking fellow named Rogozhin and Rogozhin is the he is the hand of death he is brooding he's direct he's cunning he's shrewd and he's he's a very interesting fellow in that regard uh, beside him uh, sat across him is Prince Mushkin and Mushkin is naive he is is fair-haired. boyish fair-haired blue-eyed but he is a pure soul and part of the reason that this is so is that he was born an idiot and that is a bit of an anachronistic term now we use it to describe um people that do Bud Light commercials, but previously we used that term to mean somebody that was was had a malaise of some sort. Uh, it could be someone that suffered from mental retardation. It could be somebody that was prone to strokes and seizures. It could be uh, a variety of different things, but something that prevented them from acting typically in society, they were called an idiot. It's kind of like how... Um, how certain other terms like lame ha- used to mean you couldn't walk now it means that you're a, a loser uh, you can't walk correctly it's kind of in the same term idiot meant you couldn't act now it means you can't act or think correctly so anyhow uh they are on a train they are both on their way back to russia 
And that is significant because they're both foreigners in a certain sense. Now, their roots are in Russia, but they've been disconnected from the motherland for a time. They're coming back, and they are explaining themselves to one another. The prince tells his partner the story of him being an idiot, and Rogozhin mentions to him that he's going to marry Nastasia Filipnova. And Nastasia is a beauty. She's known all around... Uh, I believe it's, what is it? It's not, um, it's Petersburg, St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. She's known all around St. Petersburg as being this great beauty and it's unparalleled and Rogozin's finally won her a favor and he's going to ask for a hand in marriage presently because he's just come into a sum of money. So that is a pivotal scene. The prince meets many of the characters throughout the book there's too many to really go into in fact it's hilarious at the beginning of like part four i believe of the book the book's broken up into four parts each containing 12 ish chapters it might be 12 exactly but 12 ish chapters and uh at the beginning of part four even dostoevsky's like look there's a bunch of minor characters in this book and some of them are hardly worth mentioning and i have to mention them because they flesh out the book and make it seem more real and you might find that they're more true than the idealized archetypal characters and then he like goes on this whole defense of why he's spending so much time talking about nobodies it's pretty funny but um anyhow so he meets a bunch of of folks chiefly he meets with the epanchines and the epanchines are a family that's comprised of a patriarch who is a general from the army and his wife miss epanchine who is very important to the story in my opinion and their three daughters alexandra who is eldest smart and wise adelaida who's almost completely insignificant in the story and then she paints she paints <laughs> and then aglaya character Agla- growth aglaya is very beautiful they speak much of her physical appearance she is um she has many suitors many men are taken with her and that's aglaya and the prince also finds her to be very pretty and, and he's he's an idiot he he is not formally trained he's not formally educated but he is pure of heart and he speaks his true intentions and the epanchines are struck by his sincerity and his straightforwardness and his honesty in their first meeting with him and they become fast friends throughout the story that night through a series of events he finds himself in nastasia Filipnova's house and they begin a discussion and rogozhin is is coming there as well to ask for a hand in marriage well turns out lots of people are there that want her married either to them or to someone else for a variety of different reasons there's a huge disastrous scene where the prince seeing her eyes and feeling sympathy says that he loves her and that he wants to take care of her and it alludes back to a story that he told about when he was being treated in switzerland when he was uh, he felt compassion for a impoverished mute girl there he saw it there's a likeness to his attraction to nastasia she's got the same sadness in her eyes and he wants to care for her and he feels pity on her and says that he will marry her because he's he's smitten with with that sympathetic love for her um she says yes and they almost go away together but rogozhin basically breaks in and steals her away and drives her off uh gallivanting all around russia and that's kind of the end of part one 
part two and part three are building on characters and and further developing out these ideas there's some important parts to them that we will we will describe as we discuss the theme and the content of the story the moral content of the story but the main important things here are that nastasia feltnova is almost irrelevant in the story um there's there's only a handful of scenes with her at all she's mostly hidden at this point and Rogozhin actually attempts to kill the prince but as he's going to stab the prince effectively for stealing Nastasia's heart because she sees him as Aglaya and the Epanchines do as a pure untrammered soul that that he steals her heart she sees him as a sort of perfection and idolizes him and now Horogosian knows that he can never fully have Nastasia and so he tries to kill the prince right before he goes to stab him the prince falls into an epileptic fit and starts screaming Horogosian gets scared he runs away so that he never steals um he never steals or he never ends up stabbing him so parts two and part three all of the uh, affected parties go out into the countryside there's hijinks of the highest order and we do get some of the great quotations and great uh fleshings out of the story but things really come to a head in part four of the book where the prince has tried to leave his love for nastasia Filipnova behind he becomes infatuated with aglaya epichin uh, the other great physical beauty in the story and they are almost betrothed the whole family is dedicated to it there's one step left to go and that is that aglaya cannot feel as though the prince is free from nastasia Filipnova. So she arranges a meeting where they all, where she and the prince and Nastasia and Rogozhin all meet up, and she tries to face Nastasia. In that moment, Nastasia screams and says, "If I told him to be with me, he would do it in a heartbeat. You can't keep him; he's mine. I'm just letting you have him." And Aglaya is like, "Is that true, the prince?" And the prince effectively does not decisively side with Aglaya. It's a huge oversimplification for time's sake, but that occurs, and then uh, it breaks her heart and effectively drives her to whimpering madness. And Nastasia becomes betrothed to the uh, to Nastasia, and Rogozhin leaves. And we learn at this point that the reason the prince decided to do that is because he feels great pity for her. He actually doesn't find her beautiful at all like he finds Aglaya beautiful. He finds her almost repulsive, but he felt that without him she would die and talks about how stricken she was when he was indecisive about choosing her and he realized that she needed him in his estimation more than Aglaya did, although that remains to be seen. And then finally they're to be wed on their wedding day Rogosian shows back up classic Rogosian uh Nastasia runs to him asks her to save him reverse that and then uh he, he takes her back to St. Petersburg the prince follows in hot pursuit and we come to one of the great scenes in any literary literary work in my opinion uh, but we discover as Rogosian stalks the prince back to the same alley where he had stabbed him or attempted to stab him in part one he finds the prince brings him to his house and they he he takes him up to his room where all the windows are shuttered and he shows him that using the same knife that he was to kill 
the prince with, he has killed Nastasia Filipnova and laid her on the bed. And she's there dying, and Rogozin and the prince lay down together on the floor, and Rogozin basically goes mad, and the prince returns to his idiocy. And uh, the cops come, arrest Rogozin, send him to Siberia, and the prince gets shipped back to Switzerland, back to the same asylum he started the story in. Okay, I'm done. Not, you know, I'm proud of you. You did it. But I also feel vindicated because that was 12 minutes. So it's like, you know. I think, did, I, did I focus <laughs> on the right details? I think I hit the high points. No, no, I think I think you did. I was saying that just to be funny. But yeah, it wasn't necessarily a short summary, but I think it might be the shortest <laughs> summary possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Mishkin, Rogozin, friends, not friends, Nastia's party, Nastia murders. I don't know. It's too hard. <laughs> so, there's there's yeah. so many characters. That If there yeah, is there more are. difficulty in reading it is the characters. Keep some notes. But that's the um, thing too. Even like with that, you know, Sparknotes makes that really easy to keep a character's list. But also, there's really only a couple of characters that really matter, you know. Yeah. And met, a lot of characters are window dressing. Um, Ippolit is one I think about, who is a really important character, has a lot to say, but doesn't have a whole lot of bearing on the plot necessarily. He's right. good because of what he shows, and he shows some cool ideas, and he's interesting, but. I found a lot of my times wanting to get back to the story so much of what Mishkin and Natasha and uh, Aglaya and Rogozin were all doing. I wanted to see what was happening there, and I've Ippolit is almost a detour, if you will, yeah. uh, which is pretty Dostoevsky in any way. So, well, it, it, what's what? A lot of these characters play an archetypal role. So, yeah, exactly. So Ippolit is the fool. You know, he is he he comes to the king's court and says what only he can say. And part of the reason that he says that is because he's die he's a dying boy. And yeah. so he he gets this special privilege even if he's rebuked, he's not shot, you know, for saying yeah. what needs to be said and he says a bunch he reveals many secrets that way. Let's put it that way. And yeah. so there's a bunch of characters that you don't need to know who they are, you just have to listen to what they say. Yeah. You know? So Yeah. Um, yeah. There's several characters like that, but yeah. But I think to kind of go to the so to kind of make sense of the book in a way uh, to kind of see what it's about. It's really about this one line that beauty will save the world, mm -hmm. and you have to understand that when Dostoevsky makes that claim, he doesn't just mean something pretty, right? What he really is talking about is he's talking about the religious impulse of beauty itself. Like it's a it's a Christian claim when he says something like that, mm -hmm. and undeniably because he has a Christian character claim it, right? And That's a right. character character who's put on the spot as a Christian many times throughout the book, uh, expressing this idea. And so one of the things that you have to consider when you're going through the book is what are the things that the book itself considers beautiful. What are the characters that it describes in that way? What are the things that it wants you to pay attention to that are beautiful? Well, two, Christopher's already touched on. They're Natasha and Aglaya, right? Mm -hmm. They're both very beautiful people. And they are brought up as beautiful on purpose. Because one thing you could say, and this is literally uh, what Alexandra, one of uh, Aglaya's sisters, says, it's, is I, that... I told you wrong. It's Adelaida. Adelaide, excuse me. 
whatever. Does it really matter? <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> but what Adelaida says is that she's looking at a photo of Natasha and she says, ah, that kind of beauty could save the world or well, something akin to that. So let me tell you the times that that quote actually comes in the book. It comes up three times. Well, well, hold on. Let's let's let, give give me a second before we get there because oh, okay. it, we're, we need to set up a little bit more of the context so people can understand the importance of that quote. Fair enough. And so, this one, yep. this is the one that's actually different, though, and it's it's different with distinction. Okay. So, so let me. I'll say the other one first before the last one. So, Hippolyte, the prince actually does not say himself directly that beauty will save the world, but during a speech, Hippolyte says, "Prince, did you not say that beauty will save the world?" and the prince responds, yes, yes, I did, to Ippolit. So we know that that's the thought of the prince. So when Hunter says that a Christian said that phrase, he's talking about Prince Mushkin, um, kind of your main protagonist there. Now, what Hunter's talking about is when they are at the Epicene house and they're looking at a photo of uh, Natasia Filipnova, and, or a, fo- a portrait, rather, and Adelaida exclaims, what power and miss ebenstein is like what do you mean power and she goes that beauty is real power power like that could overthrow the world um which is a key distinction so yes um, so the beauty the the beauty of that that the prince envisions is a is a beauty that can save the world and then when folks look at nastasia they see a beauty that could overpower the world so Anyhow. Right. So what does the book itself consider beautiful? That's the important question you have to ask yourself, right? What are the things that the book are asking us to look at and claim are beautiful? Two in contrast are Agalea and Natasha, right? They they appear they're both called beautiful by everyone. They're thought of as beautiful and Agalea is even thought of like the most beautiful in high society except for Natasha who is the woman, right? right. And that that is all the connotation to it that it needs. But there's two other people that are considered beautiful in different ways. One is Rogoshin, right? He's described as being beautiful. It's very, it's not a lot because Rogoshin actually is not in the book a lot. He's very much on the periphery of the book. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that's considered beautiful is Mishkin's soul, right? Yes. And these are the four elements in the book that are really, truly expressed as beautiful, right? And repeatedly so, right? Not, not a little bit, not sometimes, but throughout the entire book. And so what that begins to paint is this phrase that Mishkin brings out throughout the book. Chris Ferrari told you about it twice. There's this idea that Natasha's beauty is something that will overthrow the world, which is not Mishkin's idea. There's the uh, Ippolit attributing the idea to Mishkin, right, that he said this. And then finally, there's Agalia herself who warns him not to say that beauty will redeem the world at a party. Yeah. Right. And so those three patterns are basically spread out pretty evenly throughout the book. Right. And it's this idea. Can beauty actually save the world? That's that's one of the that's one of the through line arguments that Dostoevsky wants you to consider. And he wants you to consider it not from, you know, beautiful people, although that's a way he's going to express and expound upon this idea. But does beauty have something more to say than just beauty in the physical sense? Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, 
well that that's that, that's where the novel begins or that that is probably the th- the big theme of the novel um one of the ways i think that this mostly gets expressed in the novel and christopher i i think you'll agree with me is the fact that what we typically see as beautiful is the beautiful girl the beautiful maiden right and both agalia and natasha obviously are a picture of what that looks like they're like two sides of the same coin and so one thing one key thing that we learn about natasha and what you natasha is the beauty of tragedy right yeah the beauty of the tragic woman's story and what agalia is is the beauty of the woman's comedy right all the good things that are supposed to happen in your life right and so um, I made that in the Shakespearean sense, right? The tragedy ends in death and the comedy ends in marriage, right? And so they're both they're both those sides. They're essentially trying to a- answer the question, what is a beautiful woman? And they're taking it from both sides, right? One of the early things we learn about Natasha is that she has been a part of an affair, right? Yep. And that affair has completely... Uh, well, she's she's more or less. It's worse than that. She's basically been groomed by the man who adopted her, right? Right. And just it's not pretty, right? And that has colored her forever as seeing her as a, herself as a damaged woman. In fact, very much after she goes off with one of the reasons she destroys everybody's expectations about her getting married early on in the book uh is so that she can go with rogazine a rogue and one of the first actions they take is they literally go to an orgy right and so like she she completely destroys what is beautiful in herself right despite being beautiful she has this nastasia never tells the truth at Mm -hmm. any point in the novel and Mm -hmm. she's she's actually that's one of the ways that she's in common with rogozian Rogozian, especially after his advances toward Nastasia are broken off in part one, he dispenses with the truth entirely. And he says to to the prince's face in one section that uh, he's his brother and they exchange the crosses that they wear around the neck as a symbol of that. And then later that night, he tries to stab him to death in the alleyway. He mm-hmm. doesn't say he he never tells the truth and nastasia doesn't either and the sad part about nastasia is that she is she has a desire to tell the truth she vacillates mm. between wanting to be able to be honest and being addicted to her own nihilism and nihilism is another major theme in the book and and in my opinion dostoevsky actually sets nihilism as well as atheism opposite beauty which he he also links to Christianity uh, and specific forms of Christianity. We'll get into that later. Uh, But she is a nihilist. She cannot pretend like her actions and her mistakes uh, matter because if she accepts responsibility in some sense for her past, she's afraid it will do her in because she her shame she feels like cannot be redeemed. And mm-hmm. so she is more more addicted to her shame than she is for the prince and his truth and the beauty of his soul and its honesty. She becomes uh, intoxicated, is one way to put it, by her own tragedy in that she can't escape it and needs it to sustain herself or so she believes. Mm. So 
Yeah, that's, she's been reading bad novels, right? Like that, and that that's even one of the ways it describes Natasha, right? Is that she's passionate and poetic, and she knows she she knows something of romance, right? And so she's believes in this dream and this thing, and she wants to believe in this, but she's been so hurt in her past. She's been so hurt by other people, and she's so addicted to the notoriety and power that comes from her shame that she can't give it up, just like you're saying. And that is what makes her such a perfect foil to Agalea. Agalea has none of that in her life. She's known for not enticing men, for not leading people on, and mocking them to some extent. Right to not having any of this drama in her life, and what yeah, she she's actually she's very childish in that way. She's like the I'm pulling your hair because I'm in love with you kind of kind of younger woman, pure woman in a certain sense. Correct. And although Agalaya is childish, she is protected and groomed by a culture that has made her something valuable. Right. She's not abused by her father. She has a good family. She has sisters that love her. And all of that has made her a prize, someone that you would really want to marry, someone that would be moving you up in society. All those things. Right. Like all the things that Natasha is not as far as marrying her. Agalaya is right. And so she comes with a whole host of problems and everything like that. But her beauty is genuine. Her uh, love is good. And she truly wants to be with somebody that she can respect, that can earn that love from her, right? Mm-hmm. She doesn't want to be abused by someone. She wants to find the right and proper man, which is why she is so put off by Michigan. Okay, put put a pin in that. We have to go yep. there, but I do want to say yeah. those are the contrasts between Aglaya and Nastasia. But let yep. me tell you what they have in common. They're mm-hmm. both profoundly unhappy. Mm-hmm. And... and this plays out in a couple of different ways throughout the book. And of course, in the final analysis, uh, after the, the prince um, basically breaks off arrangements with Aglaya, she practically goes insane. She eventually runs out with an activist, uh, nihilist, socialist count from, from Prussia, God knows where, and mm-hmm. basically becomes the, the wife of a liar and a cheat. And so she ends in in misery. And blames her family for not seeing the good in him, essentially, even though she sees that he's a liar and a cheat. Exactly. And so she she it's easy to see in the final analysis, but even during the book, the the book talks about how she wants to run away and she wants to leave all this behind and she's she's not happy being a house pet and that type of thing. And so they're they both are desirous of something else. And you start to see this bit of a of a connection between them form because Nastasia longs for the innocence that Aglaya has, and uh, and Aglaya longs for the the honing and the sharpening and the hardening that the world and interacting with it has brought to Nastasia, and and they they are deficient for each other and and their their connection is drawn directly as throughout the book nastasia writes what might appear like love letters to aglaya and tells her that he must marry the prince um 
kind of to take him off the market. And it's interesting because in that certain sense, Nastasia kind of sees Aglaya as her own agent in a certain sense and vice versa, that they're somehow working together at the prince's affection. So they, it, there's interesting diversions and conversions between their two characters. I'll just say that. Right. And so okay. that all becomes really pronounced in the poem that Aglaya reads to Mishkin, oh, which, yeah, is the sure. po- which is the poem of the poor knight. And what this essential, and we'll get to Mishkin and Rogazim, Rogazim here in a second. Rogozim. But what? Nah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but but what this poem essentially is a callback to is it's a callback to a chivalrous time, right? It's a callback to when a knight would have a woman that he would set up as his lady, and that no matter what, he would work for that ideal and image of his lady. Right, and that that was important for him. That was how love was managed in the past. That how is how this is important. That is how beauty was honored in the past. Mm-hmm. Right, that's yeah, what it absolutely. meant to people. And so, uh, Agalaya says this poem to Mishkin, and there's so many different layers to it at once. But it's something like this: one, Mishkin has already picked his lady, and she knows it, and it's Natasha. He's already said that he'll hold her above all else. Like the knight in the poem, his lady has betrayed her ladiness, if you will, and yet he still serves her, as the knight does in the poem, right? It means that. But it also means something that Aglaya is going to constantly tell Mishkin throughout the story, that he needs to become competent. He needs to become a man of society. And until he does that, he cannot be respected. And also that he needs to wield the wield a blade with with efficacy, like he has to be able to bear his will, and exactly and that that's what the knight that's why it's a the poor knight and not you know the poor carpenter or what what have you is because the the prince is incapable of employing violence. He he has the right ideals, but no means to see them out in a certain sense. And especially in the backdrop of all these, you know, uh, unlikable Russian aristocrats who are all self-serving and cheats and liars and scandals, the prince who has the best aims lacks the competence and the force needed to actually apply them and engage with them. And that's, that's what, um, well, it's why he is the poor knight <laughs> in the butt of the joke, but right. But but there's another piece to this too. Um, it's it's the fact that it's because he believes in the old chivalrous ideas that in of itself makes him a poor knight, right? Right. The ideas themselves are old and out of fashion, and it has made him weak. And so that's the that's what the poem says, and that's what Agalaya says, and everybody who knows about the poem is talking about. And it's because Mishkin's belief in being uh, a good, um, it is Mishkin's belief in being a good person that actually removes him from the ability to actually carry that out. It's strangely said. It's too old-fashioned. It's too out of date, just like knights with their chivalrous women. What you said, too, is so true because one thing that Agaliah does is she actually teaches Mishkin how to load a pistol. Mm-hmm. Right, and here's the thing that's really interesting is Mishkin is thrilled that she taught him how to load a pistol, right? Because she he he at his base he understands that she is trying, she's trying to make sense of. She loves him passionately, which is something that Natasha understands that she cannot, but 
She must be able to respect him. He must become a man, right? And he understands that her teaching him how to load a pistol is that conversation itself. Yeah. So yeah, and and it's so key that she's the one that teaches him violence, and he's yeah. super he, like he's ecstatic about it. He goes and runs around and tells other people the new how to information load a that he's gained. Right? Like, yeah, he he desperately wants to know how to load a pistol. Um, yeah. And and she encourages him that he's got to go buy one and shoot with it every day, and. Uh, it, it's a it's a great scene when you start to understand the the purpose behind it. Yes. Okay, but I think with that we got to transition to the other two characters. L- let me say one thing, and the 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 thing that these two people are there's another line that's used throughout the book, and it's the woman question, right? And that's this is something that's key. Natasha and Agalaya are trying to solve what it is to be a woman, right? And they're trying to solve what it is to be specifically a modern woman. And they're trying to do it without Matt Walsh's help. Right, right, right. But th- what I'm trying to say, what they're trying to say is like, how do you be Agalaya and Natasha? Mm-hmm. How do you, or how do you have your independence and be free from all these nasty men? Okay, yeah, there, there you go. Okay, so, so Mishkin and uh, Ragovin. Ragosian. Ragosian. Um Yeah. So, yes, enter the boys, Mishkin and Rogozhin. These two characters are the sun and the moon. And one is everything the other has, and the other one is everything that he doesn't. Uh, That works both ways. Mm. Rogozhin is a man of action. His friends are men of action. He befriends rogues and thieves and money lenders and uh, alcohol dealers and even usurers and even boxers this is the crowd of Rogosian. this mm-hmm. is the party of Rogosian, and he is the one in the story who actually wielded violence effectively he there's only one murder in the book and it's the murder of Nastasia Filipnova. And he's the one that carried it out. And he he has the ability to impress his will on those around him. But he has no goodness in him. He has spent his time being a rake and a rastabout and has not learned how to be pure of heart and how to direct his dagger in the direction of those who truly need vanquishing. So instead he finds himself turning it on friends. And that's the sad story of Rogozhin. And by, by contrast, the prince is completely honest. He, in fact, the book goes over and above to impress upon you that the prince is honest to the point of foolishness that he speaks his mind and bears what he feels in a profound way but in a way that is so transparent that it's off-putting to the people around him that his transparency is foreign to them yeah and endearing they're they're ashamed that they love him um Mm. is one way that you could you could describe it Mm. and uh, that is certainly not so with Rogozhin. People are... Uh, it's, it, I'll try it this way. People are ashamed that they like Rogozhin. 
but they're also ashamed that they love the prince uh, mm. because Rogozin is competent and useful and his friends hold him at an arm's distance, but he's a powerful ally to have. And he's impressive when he moves, things move around him. And so people are gravitated, gravitate towards him in that way. And it's so strange because there's all these people in the book that you think are allied with the prince and are on his side. And obviously Rogozin is this would be murderer and kind of sworn mortal enemy, uh, as well as his, his dear brother and closest friend in a certain sense, but that's, that's a complicated B story. Maybe we get there. Maybe we don't, but Mm. all of a sudden time and time again, the prince will be in a conversation in the book talking to someone and they'll be like, Oh, Rogozin was here. And they're like, Rogozin, why is Rogozin here? And he's like, well, yeah, and they kind of mule about, right? People are ashamed that they like him. And then, by contrast, people are ashamed at the prince's mannerisms. They're ashamed at his foolishness. And they're deeply, desperately endeared to him on all sides. And that includes mm-hmm. Nastasia Filipnova and Aglaya Epachine. So, mm. what do you have to add to that? Uh, nothing. A lo- well, n- nothing but to just say that's right. I mean, one of the things that's so scary about Rogozin is he's constantly everywhere. Right, he constantly yeah, sees everything. He constantly, this. he constantly knows everything. He is there is no, no. And the other thing too is, despite people knowing who he is and people liking him, he is never about anyone's business but his own. Ever, he's only on his own path. Right, and so he's one of the most dangerous, one of the most powerful men in the story, despite. Uh, despite having no friends, right? He, he moves throughout society. He, he has society move to his whims and he, when he wants people to be on his side, he can get them like, but he is, he is only out for himself. There's very competently. So there's a great repeating device in the book where, Oh, at the the very first we hear of Rogozin, it says dark, beautiful, impressing eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, And throughout the book, the prince sometimes realizes that Rogozin has been where he is because uh, only because he saw the eyes he felt these eyes mm-hmm. not and, and at first he doesn't even know whose face they're attached to it was just the overwhelming impression that the eyes were on him and mm-hmm. that is Rogozin Rogozin is um well what makes you what makes you adept what makes you able to move through the world with cunning uh it's your ability to observe. And that is the key feature of Rogozin. He knows what you look like and he knows what he looks like. And the prince does not know what he looks like. The prince never knows what he looks like. He never sees himself as he appears to other people. So um, yeah. Rogozin is the observer. And, and by contrast, the, the prince is the speaker. Uh, he, he has the power of speech and when he talks, people love him, even if they can't say why. And when Rogozin looks, he observes all. And so they're, they're uh, foiled in that specific way. Yeah. And so where Rogozin always gets what he aims at and never stumbles, uh, Mishkin uh, always loves and always forgives, no matter what is done to him. And that is what makes him endearing to people is because he seems to have this immense capacity to never see someone who wrongs him in a bad light to always have compassion for them and to always see things as his fault Mm -hmm. and so what he does in a strange sense is he has this 
very clear understanding of Christ's love expressed by uh, not Christ, right? And so he is constantly able to forgive others. He is constantly able to give the best of himself to other people. And he is constantly able to make them see uh, in their evil moments, he calls goodness out of them because he is constantly saying, he's constantly, he, he says this amazing line. He says, you will be so embarrassed to someone, which is like someone wrongs him. And his line to them is, don't you know what an affront this is? Don't you know how terrible this is? You, your own self, will decry it to your own self. You will be embarrassed, right? Your own right. body will make this physical problem in you. And Except the for people when the prince saying that, he's not, yeah, but when he's saying that, it's not a rebuke. He's imploring yes. them for their yes. own sake. For to, their own sake. To, to cease with their shameful behavior. Correct. And, and this happens more than once in the book. Yep. Um, and what's beautiful about it, too, is he actually pulls the good out of people. Mm -hmm. uh, helpless drunks, petty criminals, thieves, braggarts, liars. He he gets them all to give up their vices in these small flashes of inspiration due to the purity of his soul. Um, not in a way that lasts, but in a way that is true. And that's that's part of who he is. So there's the... Mm. There's the beauty of his soul that can say the words that can set the world straight for a time. Mm -hmm. uh, but but that's the that's the piece, like you said, it's the piece that he lacks. He's not competent. And so he never can stop people from taking advantage of him. And mm -hmm. people are constantly are. Whether it's their lying to him in a conversation just so that they can talk to him, whether it's they're taking money from him, whether it is they're literally taking uh, women that he loves away from him, he can't defend anything. He is constantly being taken over by other people's actions. Um, and that makes him a victim constantly. It makes him prey. It makes him somebody that can be uh, taken over and, as Agaliah will tell him again and again, not respected, mm -hmm. right? And so despite having this one thing right, he has no teeth. Right. And that makes him and that makes him uh that makes him pray to his brother uh Ragosian, uh and Natasha and Agaliah. He is simply defenseless against everybody he meets. And I think there's there's one more part that we need to say before we analyze the end of the book. Yep. Uh, because I think that's really where the summation of this idea comes into its full view. Mm-hmm. There is a dinner party. It's it's almost the climax of the book. It's not quite. But when you're reading it, you think that it will be the climax of the book. Because effectively, if the prince is successful at this one dinner party, then Aglaia's hand is all but secure. And Aglaia herself makes this clear. Mrs. Epansheen makes this clear. And it's it's... As far as you know, the whole book hinges on this one dinner meeting. Aglaia tells the prince... For the final time, don't speak. Don't say anything about executions or criminal justice or any of these things that you talk about. And especially don't talk about any idea like beauty might redeem the world. But during the course of the dinner party, the prince realizes that his benefactor who put him up into the, the sanitarium in Switzerland when he was going through his malady as a youth who was a great Christian man and, and Dostoevsky correlates that to a, a Russian Orthodox Christian man. He learns that later in his life, he became a Jesuit. And for those who don't know, Jesuits are a 
very Catholic. They are militant missionary. <laughs> They're evangelical Catholics, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, they, they, uh, he learns this, and he is beside himself, and he can't stop talking. And he expresses to everyone how ashamed he would be that that person would be a Jesuit. And everyone's going, oh, hush, you're, you're protesting too much. You're going too far. And he said, no, I'm not. The, and he makes this very important phrase. He says that the Catholic Church isn't a real church at all. They're not real Christians at all. They only worship force. And we worship Christ. And only the Russian Orthodoxy has preserved the original Christ. The other, the Catholics and the Jesuits by extension, have traded him in for something that is based around power. So he draws this illusion between the truth and power. And there's an appeal to truth, an appeal to power, and the the appeal to truth and tradition and the old ways and what is real is connected to Russia demonstrably because he then goes on to say it is only in a place like Russia where this could be preserved. The foreign European influence is... is destructive with the Catholicism that it brings. But here in Mother Russia, uh, things are secure. And he goes on to say how proud he is and happy he is to be a member of this enlightened Russian aristocracy where he feels like he finally belongs. He feels like he's reconnected with something greater, something deeper, something older than himself and found it to be redeemable, not good, but redeemable is really the key of what I think he's getting at in his speech, that there are bright spots and kindnesses and truth that can be redeemed out of this old way that doesn't exist in the rest of Europe. Okay. I think I've said enough about that, but, but it's very clear that the, the prince whose idea is that beauty can redeem the world, finds something worth redeeming in Russia. And he, he finds it there in contrast to the ideas that he correlates, which are nihilism, atheism, Catholicism, and the will to power versus the telling of the truth. And, and by the way, in that same dichotomy, we have Rogozian and the prince. The prince tells the truth, and Rogozian hits what he aims at. And so w- there's that that correlating of those two ideals and powers as well in that same speech. But you have to understand that before we get to the, the end of the story and I think the final explanation here. Any, anything to add about that speech, Hunter? Yeah, it's very interesting that he breaks a pot during the middle of it. Oh, okay, right? tell me why. I didn't think of this. He doesn't pay attention to what's around him, and he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't land the conversation like he needs to. At the end of it, he embarrasses himself and has a seizure, right? So, he's unco- so he says everything correctly and does everything wrong. Right. Right. Yeah, and so that that is his constant problem. Is he set? He knows, and so yeah. So I think you're going to take it to the meeting of the the four halves, if you will, uh, where Mishkin, Rigozin, Natasha, and Aglaya meet. Yeah, take us Correct. there, and then I'll add in. Okay, because to to me, this is the moment where salvation can take place in the novel. Right, this is where someone can be saved. Right, it's the only place where anyone has the opportunity to be 
where the main characters have the ability to be saved. These characters can be redeemed here and now, right? What has happened? What is going to get us out of here? And what does that look like? Because um, we're because mo- you have to think about who Michigan wants to save, right? Michigan wants to save uh, Natasha. And in a strange sense, he wants to save Agalaya too by giving her a good husband, right? And he feels very in love with all of them. Um, and Rogozin, so, in my opinion. And Rogozin to some extent, too. He wants to save him as a brother. So, he, so there's two things to consider. The only person who wants to save anyone and who is in it for the not for themselves uh, is... Um, Mishkin. Prince Mishkin. Mishkin. Here's the other thing. What do those people see as beautiful? Right? These four characters that meet at the end of the novel in a room together. Right? This is actually the dinner party where everything gets settled. It's not the dinner party where Mishkin talks. It's the dinner party between these four people where there is no dinner. Right? Right. And Agaliah sees proficiency as beautiful. Right? And that is what Rogoshin uh, exemplifies yet she doesn't know it because he's so proficient. She has no idea who he is. Mm. Right. She she sees the truth in the prince is beautiful as well, but, but incomplete. Yes. Rogoshin sees physical beauty as what beauty is. Right. And so that is why he's attracted to Natasha because she exemplifies this. And it's why he's willing to pay any cost for her. Mm -hmm. Natasha sees romance as what is beautiful as human souls becoming connected. And that's why she's so invested in making sure the two pure souls, Agal- the two people she sees as pure souls, Agalai and Mishkin be united, right? That that's beauty for her. Mishkin sees the human souls before him as beautiful and mm-hmm. thinks that they are worth saving and redeeming. Right. And great point. Yeah. This is why he is going and, he sees he's the only person in the room who understands what beauty is right he's the only person that sees it but he makes an extremely fatal mistake and the fatal mistake that he makes is at the end of this conversation um agalaya rogazine agalaya and natasha basically carry the whole conversation rogazine almost has nothing to do with this conversation he's just simply there uh if anything he is there to ensure that whatever decision the women make can be enforced. That's all he is really there to do, right? He doesn't, he will do whatever Natasha says because he loves her. He will let Agalaya do whatever he wants to do because that's what Natasha wants. And he will allow Mishkin to do whatever Mishkin wants, right? But he, he almost has nothing to say in this. Um, but Agalaya and Natasha are going to constantly bigger over essentially this, which one of them Mishkin loves more, right? Did you just try and say the word bicker? What did I say? I, I don't even know if I can repeat it. I think we're canceled. No, I'm, just um, kidding. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Okay. Um, and they're, they're trying to decide who Mishkin loves more. And what and Mishkin talks about this later in the book. We don't need to talk about it, but you need to understand he realizes this, but he's too stupid to parse it out. Mm-hmm. He loves them both. Right. Right. And he loves them for different reasons. And here's something that's crazy. He loves them for noble and religiously correct reasons. He loves Agalaya as a beautiful person that he wants to marry, as someone who is a good member of society, who has been a good person, and who deserves to have a good husband. Yeah, and, and let me just expand on that for one minute. Agalaya is the future. 
and yeah. a, she's the future of humanity. She's the young woman. She's the supple woman. She's the untrammeled virgin, right? And in within mm-hmm. her sits this unlimited potential for the prince to create demonstrably something that is that can go out into the future and continue redeeming the world as is his mission. And that's that's Aglaya for you. She's got that uh, that chaotic but untouched virgin potential. And yep. that's what he he loves about her. Yep. And then by contrast, you got the old whore. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so the, what he feels for Natasha, he calls it pity at one point, but it's actually like agape love. What he actually wants for Natasha is to be saved and redeemed, is to know Christ, is to no longer make the decision she makes and to come out of this hell that she's in. And so he actually says, and, and, and at the beginning of the story, uh, in the first dinner party, he tells Nastasia that she is quite beautiful, but he admits finally in the last few pages of the book that he doesn't find her face beautiful at all. Actually, he's repulsed by it um, mm. because it's so trammeled with the marks of madness, madness and, what she's and sin done. And, and tragedy, mm. but he fit, he has such an extreme pity for her. Um, mm. Yeah, so... So the the argue oh sorry are we done there? Well, I was just I can let me go and maybe yeah. there's something you want to add. And so the argument culminates in this is that Agalia and Natasha uh, basically look at him and say choose me or her, and they basically are of a certain disposition. And whether this is Dostoevsky's writing or it's what they actually say, I can't remember uh, what's the difference um, that. Whatever he says, the minute he has to, the next thing he has to say has to be one of them, right? It has to be one of them. And if it's anything but one of them, then it's not good enough. This is exactly what Agalia says at the beginning of the book, that if you did, if, if this suitor hadn't bargained with her, she would have been with him, mm-hmm. right? But because he bargained and wouldn't commit, she can't commit to him. You mean Nastasia, I think. No, I mean Agalia, actually. Oh, oh, actually, that's interesting because it is both of them. Okay, yeah. anyway, go ahead. And so, and then, um, and then Mishkin looks at Agalia and he says, but just look at how pitiful she is or look at how miserable she is mm-hmm. pointing to Natasha and he loses Agalia forever yep. and he never gets Natasha. Yeah. He actually runs after her at that moment and cannot run fast enough to catch her. Here is, here's the key piece. And this, this becomes clear is Mishkin because he cannot distinguish between these two types of loves that he has for these individuals. And he talks about this explicitly in a couple of chapters. Because he cannot do that, he cannot have a bride. Mm-hmm. Right? And what does Jesus do for the church? Claims it as his bride. Mishkin cannot enter into that relationship. He cannot actually perform salvation. Natasha doesn't want to be saved. Right? Mm-hmm. But Mishkin is so confused that he actually cannot perform the action that he has been purposeful, that he speaks to everybody. He doesn't know what's in front of him. It completely misses him. And he cannot have a bride. And he never has one. And, and, and so that's super critical because it helps you analyze the end of the story, I think. Mm-hmm. After that, Mishkin gets betrothed to Nastasia. They set the date for the wedding. And yeah. as is his way, Rogoshin shows up on the day, 
carries Nastasia off by her own will. She she can't go through with the wedding. She asked him to. <laughs> yeah. But takes her away and then in her sleep wakes up and ends up murdering her. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. And the prince, I, I'm going to go extra canonical here, but I think I'm correct. So take issue with me if you want. The prince is not surprised that this happens. Not in the slightest. He's not even that upset. He knows very well that this was a eventuality, in my opinion. And before, in the interlude, he searched for Aglaia. He went to the Epanchin's house. He wished to speak with her. And he kept saying, I know that she'll understand. And, and someone says, but you're going to get married to Nastasia. And he goes, it doesn't matter. Because I think he knows what's going to happen next. I think I think he foresaw everything that was to occur after this point. And part of that explain, explains his malady and his preoccupation when he's searching for Nastasia and Rogozhin back in Petersburg. So he goes back to Petersburg. Rogozhin stalks him. Finally, under the cover of darkness, reveals himself to him and takes him back to the room where Nastasia Filipnova is stabbed, lying on the bed. Um, with her wedding dress scattered in pieces around the bed, dead. And the prince knows what is happening. And he knows what is going to happen to him. And Rogozhin makes a little bed out of cushions on the floor for them to lay back on. And they lay down and talk the night through while the prince loses his mind because the prince knew i believe that when nastasia died his sympathy for her combined with his inability to save her would return him to madness Mm. that he would he would be incapable of he would be incapable of rectifying the gap between his desires and his abilities Mm -hmm. and i think that's why he says it doesn't matter Mm. when that he's getting married because he's a man that knows that he's on his way to die and in that sense rogozhin is judas and aglaia is peter in a certain sense who wants to save save him from that fate and uh nastasia is just a whore still i'm just kidding (laughs) but but that that's the culmination of the story one piece that we left out that i just have to mention here there is a portrait that's brought up multiple times in the story in rogozhin's home and it's so crucial man because it's something that Rogozhin hangs in a prominent place because I think it's what Rogozhin finds as beautiful. Uh, it's a picture of Christ. But it's not Christ on the cross doing the work of redeeming. It's after they take Christ down off the cross and he's simply lying dead on the ground. Not in his burial shroud, but with a look of horror on his face. And... Dostoevsky goes to great lengths to 
impress upon you that this photograph is not one of classic beauty. Neither is it one that shows Christ transcendent in any way, but simply a scared dying man. And what's so critical is that that's exactly what Rogozhin ends up with. Mm. He, he has the prince, the ineffective Christ, not doing the work of redeeming, giving in to madness on the floor over the death of Nastasia Filipnova. And that's, I think, I think the first time that you see that picture right at the beginning of the book, I mean, it's, it's clear that this is, this is the fate of the prince, not a, not a beautiful transcendent Christ, but, but an ineffective one. Mm. And, uh, it's quite a striking, it's quite a striking image. Mm. So the police come in and they arrest Rogozhin, send him to Siberia. They send the prince back to where he started in Switzerland. Aglaya runs off with a count who turns out to be a cheat and a crook. And of course, Nastasia is dead. But I, I actually want to read the very end of the book because I think this connects this story back to the, I think the final, the final meaning for us, let's say, uh, and, and what my key takeaway is. And maybe we can discuss that, Hunter. If you would be so kind. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of the novel, when the prince first shows up, he immediately endears himself to Miss Epenchin. And she says in a prophetic way, and she is prophetic throughout the story in several places. And I think this is one of them that I'm about to read. But she says, I think you were sent here just for me. I think you were sent especially for me. There's something that you need to teach me and you need to be a companion to me. And even though we follow the story of him trying to be a companion to Nastasia and Rogozhin and Aglaya, I think in the final analysis, he actually was meant for Miss Empachin. This is the final lines of the book. And it's talking about after the prince had returned to the sanitarium in Switzerland, the Epanchins minus Aglaya come to see him. And this is what it said. Poor Lizabetha Prokofievna, and that is the actual name of Miss Epanchin, was most anxious to get home, key part. And according to Evan Jean's account, she criticized everything foreign with much hostility. Super critical right there. Quote, they can't bake bread anywhere decently, and they all freeze in their houses during winter, like a lot of mice in a cellar. At all events, I've had a good Russian, a good Russian cry over this poor fellow, she added, pointing to the prince, who had not recognized her in the slightest degree. So enough of this nonsense. It's time we all face the truth. Critical. All this continental life, all this Europe of yours, and all the trash about going abroad is simply foolery. And it is mere foolery on our part to come. Remember what I say, my friend. You'll live to agree with me yourself. So spoke the good lady almost angrily as she took leave. So that's I I think that's the key part of the novel. And let me make a little case for tragedies in general. Uh, I think the last lines of every tragedy are not about the story. I think that they are in the story, but I think they are talking to the reader directly. Uh that's probably not true in every single case. I think it's the general truth that at the at the tra- the end of a tragedy, the reader has to talk directly to you and or the writer rather. And the reason that I find this to be the case is because you have to 
the writer has to uh the writer has to explain himself to you said i just made you look at a train wreck i just made you look at something horrible uh i i've made you look at at the death of christ on the cross so why did i do that to you and he has to make an argument for why he did that to you um f f scott fitzgerald does this in a lovely way and says so we beat on boats against the current born ever into the past to explain the purpose of telling you this sad story and what it means about the human condition and shakespeare does this directly in romeo and juliet he just sits he has the actors just turn and face the audience and say you know don't seek revenge right um Mm -hmm. and i think that it's a it's a trope that is very common given the prince's speech in in the the dinner party with the aristocracy the the first climax of the book if you will he makes this parallel that i've already described between russian christianity and he set opposed to it nihilism and atheism and and the jesuit catholic foreign influence and here at the very end of the book after miss effenstein said I think you came specifically for me. She ends by saying, I have a desire to go back to Russia and to get out of the fantasy and tell the truth. And then she says something to another character, but I think she's saying it to all of us is that, and one day you will come to agree with me. And in a certain sense, I think this is an answer to the question, can beauty save the world? And I think if you asked Miss Epanchin, she would say yes. Um, but maybe she doesn't know exactly what kind. But I think what happens here in a microcosm is that not the prince by his own actions changed Miss Epanchin's soul and redeemed it with the beauty of his purity and innocence, but actually the drama the integration of of the prince and his foil Ragozhin, over the over the battleground of Nastasia and Aglaya created created this drama that played out where the pure spirit integrated with the shadow which is competent and cold and calculating and showed her that beauty properly integrated would call back to the old ways that it would call back to the truth and true christianity and that russian brand of christianity as dostoevsky put it and then she says and one day you'll all agree with me and i think right there she's saying that there is coming a better christ than this poor knight something like that yeah, you know, one thing about Miss Epenshine is that she's kind of an idiot too. Uh, you know, like like um Michigan, right? She says things that are like kind of just off the handle, right? Like nothing that's really necessarily calculated, nothing that's necessarily uh very 
well thought through, but definitely what she feels. Yeah, and other right? characters in the book acknowledge that she's a peculiar. Yes. And so in some ways, what's really interesting about her is she's very much like Mishkin. And what's also very similar to her about Mishkin uh, so one one thing is that Dostoevsky is very interested in the idea that the churches and rituals and things like that keep the door open to Christ. And I think that's definitely one argument that you see about the Russian church being made right here is that it's keeping this door open to this truth and this uh, idea of Christ that the Catholic church seems to be losing. Yeah, I would is, say I that's think, a fair bet because he literally wrote that at the end of, um, oh, what is it? Is it crime? No, the brothers, the brothers Karamazov. about the russian church no no that he literally leaves the door open <laughs> to christ oh. at the end of the brothers karamazov that's not at the end but oh uh, yes you're right it's not my yeah, that, that, that's that's at the end of the story of the grand inquisitor which is actually in the middle of the book right you're correct um, but but um but uh miss epensheen also struggles at the end of the book similar to mishkin to make the argument um, coherent, mm-hmm. right? It's too far away from her, and so there's this idea that the that the drama and the idea of this is actually going to still stay alive, right? The beauty of the story will still continue, but it has nobody to actually carry it forward. It has no actual, it has nobody that can actually save somebody by it in the grand scheme of things, right? It's like what you in this, you know, Rogazim and Rogashin, whatever, and. <laughs> Mishkin never truly integrate, right? They kind of have to admire each other from afar and see this kind of cold thing that they make together, and then they kind of completely disintegrate from each other, right? Yeah. Into madness itself. And so there's no and so like in the in the second dinner party, as I like to call it, between the four halves, what should happen is the competent man should steal the the bride should should liberate the bride from the evil man right and he can't do it and that seems to be the same thing that's happening to miss epinchina at the end of the book right she also cannot explain herself mm-hmm. like mishkin yet she sees it and so what is true yeah she's what correct is, but, she's correct but she can't convince right and so what what i think the idiot does so profoundly is that it says to us, Christians, in your day, it requires true idiocy to see the truth, right? What the world will call foolish is actually wise. That's Jesus's words, right? And so that's crazy, right? And then it says, it says this, uh, um, what the world will call foolish is actually wise, right? And it says, what can liberate you in this new world, right, is a fully integrated version of this, and we don't know where it's coming from yet. Mm-hmm. And that's the hope that the idiot actually leaves you with, right? right? Is that one day something will actually bring this together, and that Mishkin and uh, Rashkovin will become integrated into the same person. God's wrath and God's mercy, right? put together into one human being and, and it leaves the door open to that too I, it, the ending mm. is uh, the book is tragically sad um yeah read it uh it's but incomprehensibly sad yeah it, it's it's a doozy um in fact i finished it and i my wife knew i was trying to finish a book 
and immediately I said, she said, how was it? I said, that was incredibly sad. Um, I think I said the exact same thing. uh, But there's a there's a couple brilliant lines there's that spark right with miss Eppenstein's talking and she goes one day you'll see you'll agree with me and that yep. to me man if we're going to make allusions to the bible that's that's every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that's what that Correct. moment sounds like to me and Correct. additionally and, and this is so beautiful in the way that dostoevsky does it the prince has gone mad again and a base writer, a more base writer would say he's, he's mad for the rest of his life. That's not what the writer says. The, yep. he, he says that he goes to the doctor and the doctor says, I'm not necessarily hopeful, but there's a chance that he returns. And after the prince returns, one would think that his trial and his tribulation make him competent, that by engaging with the dark the darkest side of the world which is the contempt and the hatred that will see the highest beauty and slay it out of contempt and nihilism and a refusal to accept what he knows is true is that there's meaning in the beauty before him as far as he can see and remember that's Rogozian man he's the eyes he does he sees beauty with his eyes that's why Nastasia is is God to him. It's the top of the, it's the top of the pyramid. When she says, come, she, he comes. And when she says, go, he goes, right. He sees, he sees, and she is the top. She's the hierarchy. And it doesn't even explain why, because finally he's won what he's, he's wanted. Nastasia, the the apex came back to him and said, help me, save me, take me up to your own apartment. Right. This is Mm -hmm. what Rogozian desires. And he doesn't know why he kills her at 3am. And the reason is because he knows that beauty is dangerous, man. And he knows that, that, that type of danger, uh, has the ability to, to change him and to, to make him into something that he's not willing to be, but he knows that it has a transformative power. At least he fears it. And so he doesn't really explain why, but he kills her. Um, he kills her because he can't see why she loves Mishkin. Well, well yeah, exactly. That's exactly. He, he has he, he has no idea what that is. That's exactly right. But but yeah, he it's it. But that's that's his contempt acting out. It's acting mm-hmm. out against what he val- sees as most valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also why kill her, her? Why kill her then? Why not kill her at the dinner party before where she chooses Mishkin right in front of you? But he, he kills her after he's won or at least won a momentary respite, right? It doesn't make a lot mm-hmm. of sense. Truly, the timing mm-hmm. of it. So Yeah, it, and, it, it's like it's because it's because he knows even when he's won, he doesn't have her. Right. And there's the right. man, there's this too. Like you're exactly as long right. as she's not his, he can still get her. Right. 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 But now he's got her and he still doesn't have her. He still doesn't have her and he realized that. That's a great insight. How about this Mm -hmm. too? The knife that he kills her with is the knife that he had for for Minchkin. Which is the same knife Mishkin threatened him with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's like it's the knife that he meant for Christ, he finally turned on his own ideal. And Mm -hmm. that's the that's the heart of contempt, man. He uh he's a he's a really interesting character. And mm. so he stabs her, and and does away with the apex of beauty because he realizes that there's something transcendent about him that he that he can't seem to grasp. Right. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. Given all that, the the prince has to bear witness to that. He comes face to face with that contempt 
with that hatred, the one who would hang the picture of Christ in his room, defeated and naked and beaten and bruised, and no mm. triumphant glory, and not doing the work of redeeming, but simply, in a Luciferian sense, reveling in the defeat of the Most High. Mm. So the prince is engaged with that, and that's the type of thing that makes you strong. That's the Jungian integration with the shadow. It's you look at the the most terrible thing you can imagine, or the abyss, and you wait until the abyss stares back into you. And then you'll see in it the strength that you need to integrate your shadow and become the effective person that can use, uh, if you want to put it in Jungian terms, the old way, the, the, the power of your father to do battle with this present darkness, let's say. And mm. that's what Minchkin has gone through. And I love that Dostoevsky says that the doctor's not hopeful, but he's giving a prognosis on the doctor. He's really giving a prognosis on all humanity. He's saying mm -hmm. that he might come back. And he'll come back after doing battle with that that Luciferian darkness. And to me, that's that's the idea that if you were to properly align yourself, if you're properly if you were to properly integrate yourself, there's no reason that you can't be the thing that redeems. That the the option for redemption is on the table. We'll just see if the prince comes back, which is a great, I mean, it's a perfect idea. And then, of course, of course, Epishin knows how the story will end, that one day the perfect prince will come back That's and right. return. And so, uh, man, it's a fantastic book. And, you know, how how is it relevant today? Well, in just a few words, because we've gone on quite long enough, but, yeah. but beauty is under assault. And I mean beauty in all of its forms. Mm -hmm. um you just have to listen to the way that these gen zers talk they don't even speak english um mm -hmm. there's no respect oh god for real yeah no cap <laughs> <laughs> i thought we were bussing but turns out you sus <laughs> um there's no there's no love for the old things yeah and by the way now we're taking our little girls and we're carving them up into Nightmare Before Christmas, Tim Burton's Sally-esque monsters. The woman question. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's an attack on beauty directly, as yep. base and as, as illiberal as you can understand it. Mm. And our, I think our age is going to be continually characterized by that. So what is the answer to that question? Well, I think Dostoevsky, in, informed by God himself, says that the answer is be pure be focused on other people and then be competent your mm -hmm. your purity in spirit doesn't go far enough yep and uh yep man i think that's what the prince has to tell us in a nutshell hunter the idiot i'm sorry the prince the idiot well it's the same the thing, prince is the sequel that never came up <laughs> the prince of egypt the yeah, sequel yeah yeah, the sequel to the idiot. No, that's great, and I think you nailed it there. Uh, I think that this, I think that I think that's exactly the message of the book. I think it's something that Dostoevsky probably said better than anybody else, and just it's why you should read him. You should take the opportunity. Uh, go do it. Don't be afraid. Um, I'm proud. I have a friend who is jumping into this, uh, the brothers Kramazov, and is getting into it, and kind of a stretch for them. And I think it's great. I think everyone should and. 
I think you will, by reading it, you'll begin to understand the mystery of Christ's love and how it can be enacted in your own life better. I yep. really, truly believe that about this writing. He's he's the scary Russian vodka-soaked Lewis. Yeah, exactly. For real, on God, and that's no cap. Okay, get tested. Come <laughs> on, <laughs> oh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. get tested yet. I know, um, it just felt like the it just felt like the right time, you know. Uh we're forgetting something. Please buy from our sponsors so we can pay for Hunter to get a speech tutor. <laughs> that is it won't e- work. Exactly right. We'll need the money for that. Hey, seriously, yeah. um, this episode's been brought to you by Mega Knife. Uh, today, <laughs> the the blade that, that Rogozin used on Nastasia, it had a bone handle. I'm going to find one like it on MegaKnife.com, and that'll be our knife of the week this week. Go pick you up that as a memento uh, for making it so deep into an episode uh you'll help us out you'll help meg and i out and we will both really appreciate it finally like and subscribe it really matters that you guys do that it really means a lot it helps us spread these ideas to more and more people and hunter and i are truly of the belief that it's it's ideas like this that aren't ours but hopefully that we can we can diffract like like crystals and, and uh disambiguate to to more and more folks that really do make the difference so please go and do those things tell us what you want to hear email us at carlpulling at gmail.com uh go to carlpulling.com slash knife to look at all of our our sponsors deals our socials he's at emotional carl i'm at chris x carl follow the show at carl pulling and with that if you can spend over an hour and a half discussing russian literature you might be the idiot yourself so <laughs> go to a a, a uh, Swiss sanatorium and get the tested. <laughs>